millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Dave Hanready and there will be no encore. Welcome to episode 313. Unlucky for some, unlucky for Craig Fitzpatrick and myself this week as we gave ourselves. Uh, we we're just discussing this off mic. An absolute fucking mountain of podcast work to, climb. to do. Um, yeah. uh, Dragon Mountain, is that the thing? Is that the title of the album? Um, Dragon New War Mountain, I, I believe, believe in, in you, you, Dave. Yeah, okay. Uh, do you believe <laughs> Have I memorized that or is it just written down? Do you believe in us, though? Uh, it's no encore, it's a music podcast. We will be reviewing the 80-minute, 20-track epic from Big Thief later in the show, and it will be a prelude to our top five this week, which is top five long albums. And basically, Craig and I were discussing, at the risk of sounding like broken records, um, I think we're both pretty burned out mentally in a lot of ways at the moment. For sure. Like, I'll be up front at the start of this, listener, and I'll just say that I'm currently actually experiencing a very difficult uh, mental state right now to the point where I have to take a couple of days off work. And I'm, I'm yeah, I, I'm not, like, I think we're, we're probably going to talk about Kanye West in the news section. Maybe it'll cross over, but, like, uh, for any new listeners to the show, I sometimes talk about my mental health and this is probably going to be one of those episodes because to be brutally honest with you, I'm having a real fucking tough time. Um, and I don't see how it won't get involved in terms of what we're going to talk about on this episode because it feels yeah. like I'm starting off on a downer and I, and I, and I don't mean to be at all, but man, if you're, if you're having a, an overwhelming experience, uh, and you feel like your brain is quicksand, and you have to listen to a string. Welcome to the party. You're amongst friends. <laughs> of, extremely, of extremely long records. Uh, Jesus, oh, we, yeah. we, we could have given ourselves a, 
an easier assignment I this was, week. I was so bullish on Monday. You were, it seems you were like a lifetime where? ago. I was like, yeah, this is the one. Top five long albums. <laughs> <laughs> we have zero prep time, but yes. <laughs> Um, I presume you've given each of your selections the five um, listen patented test. five yeah. listen on, on top of the 80-minute Big Thief record. It's true. That's why I took two days off work. I, I pretended I was having um, an absolutely horrific, self-loathing mental breakdown. Um, no. Yeah, well, look, in fairness, I mean, like, to my surprise... Uh, somehow managed to get it done um yeah we'll get there though um i didn't listen through to all of them i must say but uh, okay they are my favorites so sure, okay. i kind of had i dipped in and out uh, there's yeah, all kinds of full disclosure yeah there's all kinds of definitions to get into as well which we'll which, which we'll try and do oh, we'll get um and what we'll try and do now is plug the patreon for the show it's patreon.com slash no encore if you enjoy the show and want to go the extra mile, the only thing we ask of you is to just tell your friends about the show in general. Try and increase that listenership. But uh, if you want to help us keep the lights on, etc., it's patreon.com slash nuancore. We'll hopefully be recording a new No Ox Chord soon, which is our monthly recommends corner. Oh, yeah. uh, Adam Shanahan isn't on this Zoom call. I believe he's at an art exhibition right now because he's got a, a more interesting lifestyle than we do. So glamorous. But yeah. he will. He's a very glamorous guy. Uh, congratulations to him, by the way. I think this was the first week in which he's moved from his full-time job to his actual new full-time job, which is being an engineer. So Yeah, yeah. No better man. Career in music, he's doing it. Um, yeah. Making it happen, we're very proud of him. Very proud of the boy. Um, he is our boy, and he's incredible. So, And I've no doubt that he will that this new chapter of his life will lead to incredible things and hopefully he won't drop us like a bad habit because that would be really upsetting <laughs> I hope this isn't like Never. the setting of things to come he keeps assuring us that he won't um, I think he's speaking can't of... do next week's show so it's like oh this is it, oh, it is. <laughs> this is speaking of incredible boys Dave can I talk about myself for a second yeah, always yeah need, of course I need to get something off my chest are you leaving the show um <laughs> No, this would be a bad week to do it, Craig. I'm just going to tell you. <laughs> it's a bit more of a bombshell. It actually ruined my day at like half eight this morning. Um, so, Dave, a couple of weeks ago, it might, or was it even last week, maybe it was just last week, you dipped your toes into the Wordle waters for the first time? I did, Did yeah. you keep it up? Um, no, I, I, I've dropped off already, of course. Okay, well, I kept it up for about a month and then... This morning on the train, something dreadful happened. I didn't get it. No. <laughs> My streak ended. <laughs> and it was devastatingly traumatizing to the extent that I was like, what has happened to me? Like, wow. I instantly was having thoughts of like, this is not a good sign for my entire work day. It was a packed train. I was looking around being like, did people see that? Can I tell people? So I'm telling people, yeah, it didn't happen for me today. Um, I got three letters straight away. I'm not going into this, but I got three green letters straight away. Sounds like you're going into it. There was too many options, Dave. There was too many potential words. I got off to too good a start and I ran out of guesses. So it's over for me. Screw Wordle. Screw the New York Times. Um, I'm moving on with my life, but I'm, yeah, I'm fraying around the edges, dude. Yeah, um, I know how you feel. It sounds like you could use some Xanax, which I've been prescribed by my GP. <laughs> and the reason I bring this up is because I thought of you today. My letters. Uh, no, I thought of you today uh, while I was obtaining the uh, item in question. Uh, I went into the pharmacy this morning and I was, again, feeling much like I'm feeling now, just horrific. And I was queuing up and I was just like, can I get this prescription, please? My doctor, I believe, has, has dropped it in for me. Um, and the very friendly and helpful lady behind the counter was just like, oh, what's your address? And I was like, oh, it could be my old address. It could be my new one or it could even be my older one than this. And she was like, okay. And yeah. I was like, well, how try this one. And I just became, honestly, I was just like, oh, this is, this is just, this is just too much. I can't handle this. And like, 
She like was, it became an existential completely, thing? Completely, yeah. Just and the, then she was uh, like, okay. oh, so it was like, what, what is my place in the world? Yeah, kind of it was vibes. horrific. And then she was okay, like, oh, okay. I'll try and find it. And I was like, cool. And I just realized as she walked away that I was actually... I was actually tearing up. I was like, I'm actually sitting, I'm, I'm in the pharmacy trying to get Xanax and I'm crying. This is, this isn't good. This feels like a terrible novel. Um, and then eventually, like when she kind of resurfaced, she said my name, but said it in a very kind of weirdly sing song way. She was like, David. And then she kind of had this moment <laughs> where she was like, I'm sorry. She was like, that was, I don't know how to say your name or something. And I went, oh, it's very, it's a very plain name. I think you, you, you did it justice. And then she, I don't know how to say David. I, 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 I'm, what was happening? I don't no, and I think she just I think she felt that she had gone too far with the with the enthusiasm of saying it or something and okay, the, the delivery okay. I suppose and then I kind of was saying to her like I was like no no it's really cool and I think she was apologizing she felt I think she felt embarrassed and so I kind of caught this and I said to her and again keep in mind broken man here with tears in his eyes was like um I was like, oh, no, no, I, I said, you, you, did, you, did, you did a wonderful job. I said, there was real melody in that. And I could see that she was laughing along. And then she said to me, she literally said, she's like, oh, thank you so much. She goes, uh, I feel, she goes, she goes, you've made me feel really good about that. You made me feel a lot better. And then I said, it's my job. And I, in my head, I was just like, <laughs> I was like can I just please leave? It's so my job, I sometimes found myself in this mild flirtatious or some degree of trying to make this other person feel better. Well, that I was should be your job. Literally standing there New with career, fucking like Patch Adams tears in my eyes trying to get drugs off her. So, still okay. got it, basically, is kind of what I'm you getting. Beat off. my wordle anecdote. Congratulations. That's I'm now just thinking as well of Adam getting back from an evening, a lovely love evening at a gallery, <laughs> being like, I'll check in with the boys, stick on the old humongous audio phone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, wow, these guys are. <laughs> where is this going? He's going to enjoy it. Uh, with that in mind, yes. uh, let's get to the news. This is the part where Adam will play the news sting later on. Hey, you heard about the good news? Okay, so um, do we want to talk about Kanye West in this whole situation? I don't really want to, but I kind of feel like we I mean, have to. I feel like we shouldn't play the yay on Kanye. Or <laughs> yay on Kanye. Yeah, it's that kind of week, guys. Oh, Sorry. It is. Craig on Kanye. Craig on yay. Sure. Sting. Let's just skip that bit, Adam. I guess let's skip most of the updates because by the time this podcast mm. actually lands... God knows what will have happened. Yeah. Donda 2 might be coming. There's a whole family situation going on. There's been a lot of Instagram posts that I've been skipping. Um, I don't know about you, Dave, but I haven't been able to take all of it in because I just can't. And actually, I did I did notice some updates from Kanye and it wasn't so much the content. It was the... Um, the execution, I guess. He was very all caps heavy over the weekend into the start of the week and my brain just couldn't process it. And I was like, nothing good is within these all caps. I think he apologised yesterday for some of the kind of weird threatening stuff he was saying. Yeah, um, Quite obsessive behaviour and thoughts that he seemed to be reining in or his PR team did and God knows what's happening at this moment in time. It's a messy, horrible situation. And... He went to kind of lowercase, which was great. I think that's a start. That's all we can hope for. I was then thinking about our show <laughs> and thinking, we go all caps. Just for the title, <laughs> but just Just for the title, right? Is it is it too much, Dave? Are the all caps too much? It was a stylistic thing, but now I'm thinking, are we shouting at people? No, um, it's too much if you commit to it to an entire... like If we were like screaming on the podcast or something, or there was an audio transcript and it was all in caps. I think the Kanye thing, I mean, like just to weigh in it really quickly, because like obviously 
Craig and I are huge fans of Kanye West on this show. We've talked about him ad nauseum. I think we defend him more often than we don't. Um, And I'm seeing a lot of the conversation kind of go to where it usually goes to at the moment with regards to mental health. And I mean, like I say, as someone who at the moment is currently uh, struggling massively, um, I would empathize to a degree, of course, with any of any time I see Kanye West having what appears to be some kind of public breakdown. But uh, I think a lot of his infractions lately are very, very difficult and kind of unforgivable. I mean, like, I don't want to make hard and fast black and white statements. I mean, whether it's something like, you know, attacking Billie Eilish for no reason or, you know, falling out with yeah. Kid Cudi, which obviously hurts quite Yet greatly. Again, which is, um, yeah. Because, you, you know... You patron saint of the show? Have we have we locked that in? Well, see, the thing about the Cudi thing is, like, my one of my reactions to it at first was, like, oh, to be like, oh, I'm team Cudi. But I was like, I don't want to be team anybody. I just want these yeah, guys to be fucking friends. Because, like, yeah. especially because yeah. Kids See Ghosts, has played such an important part of my life in terms of raising me up when I'm in a state like I'm the one I'm currently in. Uh, and then the Kim Kardashian stuff, which is just public harassment and is absolutely horrific and should probably be, you know, could very well be the subject of a fucking police investigation and, you know, yeah. Tempsey and Sight and Vons towards Pete Davidson, et cetera. It's just like, and I think ultimately you're in this very difficult position because like, um, I don't know what it's like to be bipolar, uh, but it shouldn't necessarily excuse very harmful behavior towards other human beings, which is kind of, I think, the road he's currently on. And it's very upsetting. And we're seeing this kind of unraveling. You know, we've seen stuff like this before, but I think at this moment in time, it feels particularly pointed. And I, I'm i very worried about him. And I'm very, I'm very concerned. And, I, and I'm, I, I never want to forecast anything, especially for another human being that I don't know. But like, I just would, I, I, I would worry deeply that like we're going down a pathway that I don't know if he'll, if he'll be able to come back from. Come back from. There seemed to be a new edge to kind of proceedings and it was just um, an extra nastiness and I'm kind of leaning into a side of him which isn't the best side of him and I think you're, you're dead right. I mean, a lot of people have bipolar. Um, they don't take it out on other people. I guess you have to take responsibility for your own conditions and you obviously, people need a huge amount of support in doing that. And yeah, I've got the, you know, huge empathy and sympathy for Kanye, but now also his extended family, his close family, his friends, everyone involved, Pete Davidson, another person that's been very open about their struggles with mental health and how you can be responsible around that. It's also just a situation that I can't keep reading about because it feels, it feels too much. It feels too personal. It's not helpful to me. There's nothing I can do to help the situation. I don't think it's helping any wider conversation generally because you just have the ongoing social media back and forth and turning it into a competitive thing. It's just, it's just an absolute mess. And I don't know if we can, we can really add it, add much more to it at this point, can we? That's what I was thinking. I don't know what we can add to the conversation, even, yeah. even by raising it in this conversation. And it's happening at a time when like a Netflix documentary series is dropping as well. And I've yet to dive into that because I don't feel comfortable doing so at the moment. I do want to see it and I will watch it, but I also just feel at the moment like it's a very, as you say, it's quite close to home in a weird way. And I think it's because, you know, like, like you and I have very much, uh, been, ardent Kanye supporters on this show since its inception. Uh, We've talked at length about how important his music is to us. And like I say, in particular, when it comes to stuff like Kitsy Ghost in particular, uh, there are, there is Kanye West music out there that has genuinely like helped me to such an extent that it probably stopped me from doing something really fucking awful. And it's very difficult to reckon that with his current state, but, and I don't want to be judgmental and I don't know enough about it. And it's a lot more complex than a lot of the social media and kind of tabloid-esque nature of it. At the same time, I don't think that 
I think a lot of what he's doing at the moment isn't defensible. I just desperately hope he can arrive at a place where he centers himself a bit or something. Because I am, like I say, I'm genuinely concerned. And like the Cody thing in particular, like just I was like, oh Jesus! I was like, this is not like this is a fracture. I can't, I can't really fathom. It's it's just it's even more upsetting because it seems so cyclical, doesn't it? We've been here before. mm. We've been, you know, he's been estranged from Cody before because he's pushed him away. And Cuddy's kind of welcomed welcomed him back. And we've had those really touching, warm um, moments that have done so much for us and kind of continuing music. And then we're just back in a situation again. And it just feels so disheartening overall. Yeah, I guess lastly what I would say, and I mean, again, I'm aware that this is heavy subject matter. and I don't mean it to be off-putting for anybody listening to the show. We try our best usually to be, you know, having a good time. And I'm sure we will as the show progresses, but like, um, not to speak for Kanye West or anybody <laughs> like that, but what I will say is that like music, I've, I, I've spoken continually and constantly about how music is like such a great leveler and such a great crutch and it can be such an amazing thing if you're in a particularly bad place. But I found myself this week from my own point of view being like, even music isn't helping me. And that's a scary place to be because there's so much in it and there's so much power involved in it and nine times out of ten it can it can be that thing for me and I just have this very weird I don't know kind of like not allergic reaction to it but it just doesn't it's just yeah it just doesn't taste right or something and then seeing just stuff like this online and people just fucking picking sides and roaring at each other and just again reducing human beings to like chess pieces i just find it really fucking gross and i just would like for everyone involved to just get on a bit better and that's stupidly fucking naive of me but you know what why don't we move on to one of kanye's best friends taylor swift because uh she's back in the news kind of Jake Gyllenhaal did an interview with Esquire magazine and he said he does not resent Taylor Swift's uh, use of the extended version of All Too Well, which of course is all about him. came out last year. It was like a 10 minute or 12 minute version or something. Did you go near it when it came out? No, I didn't. And I didn't realise it was about him. Team Jake, and I'm realising how little I know <laughs> yeah, how, about this situation. But I mean, if you want to talk about the power um, that there is in music and also trying to... I guess parasocial relationships with artists, but then also the the subjects um, of lyrics and like you know what that means in a kind of wider context. He's got some interesting comments around this. So when he's talking about all too well, he says, "Listen, it's about her relationship with her fans. It's her expression. Artists tap into personal experiences for inspiration. I don't begrudge anyone that." He did turn off his Instagram comments just kind of when that release came out, and people were just like, "Okay, is he?" Does he feel affected by this kind of online harassment that's going along with the kind of the Swifties picking up on something? We've talked about that kind of group um, and the nastier kind of fringe element of that um, many times in the past and the pylons that can happen. And he has some really, I think, important words around this. And it's been said quite a bit, but it probably needs to be said again. Uh, To quote Jake Gyllenhaal, at some point, I think it's important when supporters get unruly that we feel a responsibility to have them be civil and not allow for cyberbullying in one's name. That begs for a deeper philosophical question, not about how any individual per se, um, not about, sorry, any individual per se, but a conversation that allows us to examine how we can or should even take responsibility for what we put into the world, our contributions into the world. How do we provoke a conversation? We see that in politics, there's anger and divisiveness and it's literally life-threatening in the extreme. And he's kind of, he goes on to say, is this our future? 
Um, which we probably asked that question quite a bit in a despairing way. We're going to get lighthearted in a minute, folks. But yeah, it's, <laughs> it's the Super Bowl. It's, Come know, on, don't worry. <laughs> I know he's saying, you know, it's a, it's about Taylor Swift's relationship with her fans and that's her expression. That's all one good. But he is kind of clearly saying, listen, how responsible is she for reining in this fan base? Can you even rein them in? Does that put her in a kind of endangered position? I don't know what the what the answer is. I don't think it's as easy as just saying, you know, listen, you need to give them a slap on the wrists because you get into this kind of weird cyber mob mentality. I mean, it's not particularly the artist's fault. I don't know. She does. She do. She does have a habit, and we said it before on the show to kind of have her comment which is completely fair and then duck out of a conversation when it's with another kind of major person online with the Damon Albarn thing where he was completely in the wrong and she said her piece which is like totally her right to do and then she kind of exited the conversation now he came back with an immediate apology and there was scope there potentially for a bit of a dialogue um, some kind of meeting of halfway and just kind of Maybe some forgiveness, but there was nothing really around that. It was just like, I'm now pacing out and I will let the kind of mob continue and continue they did. And I don't know. I don't want to tell her how to handle things or artists in general, but what you reckon? I mean, is there any reining this in at this point? I mean, I've even seen instances before amongst Swiftian-esque fan bases where because a certain single wasn't released and they will briefly turn on the artists themselves. So it, yeah, it, it, know, at some right? point it becomes, it's so impossible to kind of just kind of parse. I think it's very intangible in a lot of ways because you have just what appears to be, it's, it's almost like a computer program or something that's just like, you know, broken out and become its own thing. It's Agent Smith from The Matrix, Craig, is what I'm saying, basically. And it's like, what is the what is the end game here? Like, 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 what is the value in this? Where, where is the the nutritional value in any of this? Like, like, what is? I mean, are the record sales that good from these people? I don't know. Um, and I'm sure you have yeah. all kinds of subsections and splinter groups that are like, no, 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 we don't preach hate over here. Um, I will say, I thought it was well, funny <laughs> that um, when Jay Gyllenhaal was yeah. asked if he had listened to the recent Taylor's version of Red, he responded with one word. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Leave it at that. <laughs> um, yeah. But it's, you know, you talk about the different aspects of a fan base. I did notice one thing from the, the Kanye subreddit <laughs> when I was looking at some kind of um, quotes around this story um, or the previous story earlier today. And someone had written in different coloured um, inked pen a uh, heartfelt letter to Kanye saying, we're concerned about you, Kanye, but also you're going to lose your kids and a judge won't like, you know, care about how famous you are. I just paragraph after paragraph of like trying to talk Kanye through how he needs to reconcile his family situation. And it was very heartfelt. And there was lots of comments underneath being like, hopefully he sees this. It's like, of course he's not going to see this. <laughs> and I was just like, oh God. I'm, I'm only laughing because of just the nature of the parasocial thing going to that level. <laughs> It's horrible. I mean, I'd write that letter it's just too such if a I could. Situation. But I, it made me think of um, Tyler, the creator's, I think it was his bio for a while. It might still be or his comment anyway that like, just please remember that um, we've never met <laughs> and you think you know me from a few audio files. Yeah. <laughs> essentially it. But, and it's, yeah, you know, but this is the, we should remember that. This is the thing. I mean, like, and like we're all quote unquote guilty in some respects of attaching ourselves to a thing and Having that kind of parasocial relationship, I mean, like, it doesn't even necessarily have to involve social media. Like, I mean, like, think about, like, people who would follow a band on tour for years and years and years and, you know, like, just fucking go from country to country and, like, you know, buy everything. I mean, it's, I think it's possible to 
use another human being for escapist purposes. And that's often what like music can be and what film can be and so on. But at a certain point, yeah, you have to try and strip it back and just remember that these are just human beings who are flawed just like we are. And also, I mean, should granted like you know fine Kanye West is, is is the one putting it in the public eye so often but it's like this shouldn't yeah. be in the public domain <laughs> like this is not you know this is just because you're a fucking celebrity anyway look listen this is a conversation for another day and one that I don't think we're even gonna as you say add too much to and I'm sure there's lots of people listening to the show right now who are like Jesus Christ guys move the fuck on so we will move the fuck on to the Super Bowl, Craig. Did you stay up yeah, and watch it? Did you? Go. <laughs> Which column was no, your I didn't. <laughs> he would have been up for it. Um, no, I didn't. I, I. It took me a full day as well to watch the halftime show, okay. which I, I'd actually been kind of hyped for. Did you break it up over minute-long segments over the whole course of the day? Because I think it was a 15 minutes long total. <laughs> Just a drip feed yeah. of some of the best G-Funk money can buy. Um, no, I did well, not. But I did watch it a few times. See, it's funny because you, you mentioned Reddit. I'm not a Reddit person, but I did see a thing on reddit which kind of made me throw this into the news section someone had asked i saw it elsewhere as well did hip-hop just have its dad rock moment with this halftime show so listen craig for anyone listening right who has somehow has no idea what we're talking about didn't tune in whatsoever didn't even know there was a super bowl last weekend can you set the scene of what happened at halftime who was involved what was it like break it down for me please yeah so the la rams I believe it was the LA Rams, right? We're playing like the... Cincinnati Bengals, I think. Arizona Antelopes. Bengals, that was right. Yeah, that was it. The Rams won as well, I believe. Um, And basically, Super Bowl was going down in Inglewood in California, um, the heart of so much kind of West Coast hip-hop. And quite fittingly, I think initially Dr. Dre was announced as the halftime performer or maybe those were the rumours doing the rounds and then when the full announcement came it was him kind of bringing the entire crew. So it was Eminem, it was Kendrick, it was Mary J. Blige just people that have you know, benefited from his production now so over the years that have been part of that kind of scene that lineage and a huge part of hip-hop. And I guess it was a watershed moment and it definitely did feel like hip hop coming of middle age. I was thinking that watching that. It's like now I'm at an age where I'm being like, oh, this is just some good entertainment (laughs) from back in, you know, back in my childhood, getting all the hits out. And listen, it kicked off with a surprise guest, which was 50 Cent. Um, and <laughs> I found the opening extremely sweet. I found the whole thing both extremely sweet and very sanitized and corporate in a way that only the Super Bowl can be. But yeah, it was like 50 cents, 20 years on from the In The Club video, which was like that, you know, that amazing Dre production. And he did a complete homage to the video. So he opened the show kind of hanging upside down while he rapped. And God bless him, because <laughs> like, I don't know how he did it. I wouldn't have been able to do it. I think he's still in great shape. There's people taking, you know, jabs at him thereafter. But like, it just meant that by the time he was the right way around, he was completely out of breath. Um, You know, <sighs> it was very sweet. It was a very human moment for 50 Cent. He spent so much of his time being an absolute troll. And from there, it was just like... I don't know, all the hits um, and maybe too many hits. You're getting like 30 second snatches of songs and the kind of quote unquote riffs of things. And it was as well done as I think you could possibly do it in like whatever the 14, 15 minute set would allow with so many performers. 
Should it have been reined in? What did you make of the whole extravaganza? Was it too much? I just thought it was anodyne and just depressing as well. I mean, like, oh, really? oh, Eminem so took the knee. Oh, like, badass yeah, at the Super Bowl, at the Pepsi halftime show. Yeah, like, what was what was going to happen to him? Nothing. <laughs> like, why were people like, that's a brave move from Eminem, is it? <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, this is nothing. This is so done. Um, on, yeah. I, I've never looked forward to any of the Super Bowl halftime shows. I mean, it's, I think by definition. Not even Prince. Not even. Uh, I stayed up for Prince. Did you? Yeah, I did. And it was great and it was worth it. I just think by definition, you're. I stayed up for Bruce as well. Okay. It wasn't worth it. I, I, I just think that like, it's automatically uh, just lightweight or something. Like no matter what's in front of you. Like, I mean, it, it's, it's like when they have Limp Bizkit perform at a WrestleMania where it's like, it's just a sideshow and it's like, yeah, cool. I mean, I'm watching this like giant thing on a TV screen that can't possibly translate and sound amazing and I can't feel the experience. Like I say, I'm sure if I was in the stadium and like they were shooting out Pepsi t-shirts or something and I caught one, I'd be like, oh, unbelievable, I'm here. Um, But at the same time, it just felt kind of sad or something. And then there's like these weird reports that may just be tweets. I don't know. And it's like, Dr. Dre spent $7 million of his own money because that's what the NFL does to you. And it's like, well, if that's true. What the fuck are you doing? Like, why is this even this religious ceremony that is the NFL? I mean, I, I'd assume he knows what he's doing. He like business wise, he's done pretty well. Suppose, and I'm sure yeah. the kind of the bump from this would be way more than the 7 million that he's kind of splashing out. I guess, but um, in, in search of what though? And again, I just think that anytime like, you know, and like, fine, this is what the show is. Everyone does the medley thing. The weekend did it last, was it last year? Was it two years ago? Um, it was last year. Coldplay. Yeah. Like, whoever does it tends to just do like, here's the hits. It's like a wedding band or something. And that's the nature of it. I, I wouldn't go to the Super Bowl halftime show one way or the other, whether it's on YouTube or otherwise, to expect any kind of transcendent thing. It just is part of this massive thing. And that's fine. It has its place, but I'm more concerned about all the fucking terrible ads and all the, like, did Larry David sell out for a crypto ad? Did I see that? Yeah, I, b- I believe he did a crypto ad, Jesus, which is deeply happening? disheartening as well. Um, I know. The one thing I will say about the, the half, well, I'll say a couple more things about the say halftime show. Say as many show, things, Craig, like, as you think you need to say about the I'm going to show. say seven things okay. and then I'm calling it a night. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Um, you've got that weird uncanny valley thing of like consonant cheering, right? So there's no break. There's no kind of, they don't pipe in cheering at kind of like a big chorus or someone's arrival. It's just this constant kind of like white noise. Ah, And I don't think that's real people. Do you know what I mean? I don't know where that's coming from. The crowd don't seem to be that connected or mic'd up. So that was odd. There was aspects I enjoyed of it. I liked the kind of the house setup. Like, the production was good, and reading a bit about it, it was kind of like, it was a nod to block party culture. Some of the buildings were actually based on, like, um, actual real buildings in Compton. So there was a sense, I suppose, that, like, you know, NFL, bit of a racist organization, um, you know, the biggest show in on TV in America, you know, for middle America, for white America, and you've got all of these kind of huge black artists um, that are, you know, have been outspoken over the years about like African-American rights and sticking a finger up to all of that institutional bullshit. Um, So I think I was just thinking watching 
the 14 or 15 minutes. Yes, it was watered down and kind of anodyne for us because we're fans of that stuff and we're edgy guys. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but if you're like some middle American Trump racist, voter, yeah, yeah. Trump voter, you're probably like, oh, well, what's the NFL doing? But they're probably what? changing the like, fucking you know channel. I mean? I mean, like, oh, like, Eminem... I, let me, I don't let know. Let me ask like, you this though. I mean, like, is it okay. is that is that, is that like a is that a better the devil you know thing or like like or is this actually like would it not is it not more counterculture to not do it? But like, is hip hop not supposed to be on the fringe? Not on the fringe. It is. These are major artists who've fucking sold millions and will continue to, and more power to them. But like, it, I'm, not, I'm not saying that they sold out or anything like that. But like. You're viewing this as almost a celebration, like some kind of, you know, one in the eye for all the pricks around the world. And fair enough, I see that completely. Yeah. But is it not a reduction in a way? Is it not kind of like, nah, this is... Like- it's, a to- it's a total reduction, but I think it's like, you know, you take the victories where you can get them, maybe. If you look at maybe the I'm fact cynical, that like, like... I don't mean to be, I'm just If you look at like- the fact Eminem is um, an artist, a white artist from Detroit, right, that kind of started his career in hip-hop, I can immediately think of someone like Kid Rock, who's also a white artist from Detroit who started in hip-hop and is now, he's taken a very different path. He sure has, and yeah, is, Jesus. you know, cavorting around with all those Trump assholes and, you know, so it wasn't brave of Eminem to take the knee, but it could have been so much worse. That's true. It could be Kid Rock. At least there's someone How doing something like that. Has he something never done like it? That, has, he ever, has he ever been involved? That seems... Kid Rock shocking with to me the that he's never, halftime show. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. Maybe next year for balance, I'll get all of the awful <laughs> Trump rice. But yeah, the, the the seventh thing I will say because okay. I've been counting. Yeah, it was very watered down, and I realized just from a musical point of view, right? When you have all of those massive hits that actually have so many like expletives. Just every censored line, when you've got like so many rappers delivering bars, it gets to a point where the expletives are kind of the hooks. So there was we these weird gaps in songs, like all the kind of Still Dre, all of kind of Snoop's ad libs. They're all like really kind of incendiary things and they're all missing. They're all like watered down to be like, hey guys, what's going on? Like Snoop just, Snoop is so good at it by now because he's had to do like so many corporate gigs, I guess. But it's like, these are not the songs we grew up on. Um, And yeah, that was kind of disheartening. But so it did compromise even the kind of creative structure of the music. So uh, I don't know. I, it put a smile on my face, and I guess that's the main. That's thing, all that Dave. matters. Yeah, that's my takeaway. Yeah. yeah, you mentioned Snoop Dogg, um, a man who loves to have some kind of corporate tie-in. He's got another one coming up, doesn't he? What is it? Yeah, it's him and Kelly Clarkson. <laughs> we must have spoken about this before, right? That there's going to be a Eurovision-style American song contest. It was announced um, two years ago now at this point. I think we had a a news item about it. Uh, It was supposed to be kicking off this month, actually, but it's been delayed by NBC. I guess pandemic going on, all that kind of jazz. But there's been, uh, yeah, kind of an official announcement. I'm both amazed that it's taken this long for there to be an American Song Contest. And I'm also like, is this the time to be like pitting state against state. <laughs> um, I think it is, yeah. Why not? How is this country being to like their, Actual their second insurrection, civil yeah. war? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe this is just what the country needs though. It needs Kelly Clarkson alongside Snoop. It needs like that valve, like that entertainment can provide where they just like, you know, Americans are great at like channeling aggression and stuff into wrestling or into 
football or into so many different things, maybe they can channel it into their own Eurovision. And this is going to unite, what do you reckon? But to clarify, does this doesn't mean that they're sending someone from America to the Eurovision, does it? Oh no, it's just going to be the format. As, yeah, there's no European connection. Right. It's just going to piss. Because so there's going to be representatives from every state. Despite the fact it's that going that to be wouldn't make, a voting thing like the Eurovision. Yeah, well, despite yeah. the fact that that wouldn't make geographical sense, surely the end goal of this has to be that the overall winner goes to the Eurovision, no? And they make an exception to be like, and now America competes in its first Eurovision, even though it's Europe, blah, 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 blah. Um, I think I will have a curiosity look at it, but it just sounds like another American Idol, doesn't it? I mean... Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. It's going to kick off March 21st, and then it's going to air for eight weeks. It's not very Eurovision-y in that regard. There's a grand final on May 9th, which might be the one to check out, um, which is before the first semi-final of this year's Eurovision, which is probably one not to check out. Do you know what would be? It'd be great if you got like actually renowned artists from every state involved and like pit them against each other, right? Because I'd be curious, I'd actually be curious to go around the states and kind of go, is anyone from Alaska? Like, is there any established name from, like, Jewel? Was Jewel from Alaska? Is there anyone from like North Dakota? We can work on this in our spare time that we don't have. Let's do it. Uh, yeah. In the meantime, we'll move on. Uh, before we wrap up the news section, what's my um, recent new best friend James Blunt been up to this week, Craig? <laughs> He's been helping to repel COVID protesters in New Zealand, Dave. Uh, I initially picked the story and was like, oh, wow, it's like one of James Blunt's tweets is like come to life and like before he, he could get the gag in. Um, but actually it turned out that he started with the gag. So police New Zealand have turned to the music of James Blunt in their latest effort to repel protesters who were camped outside Parliament. Uh, the demonstrators angry at COVID-19 vaccine mandates have been blocking the streets of the country's capital, Wellington, and tactics used by the local authorities to try and get rid of the protesters included turning on the sprinklers on the lawn, which is very get-off-my-lawn stuff. It's like, um, it's quite quaint and nice. Protesters retaliated though by digging trenches, which isn't quite so, well, it's a bit quaint, but it's not so nice. And building makeshift drain pipes to reroute the water, um, which is resourceful, if anything. And then once the sprinkler tactic proved ineffective, police turned to blasting out Barry Manilow's greatest hits, which include Mandy and Could It Be Magic, if it needed to be said, on a 15-minute loop from one of the Parliament's loudspeakers, as well as the 90s Spanish hit Macarena. Um, this, like... You just I get mean, me in Barry the mood, Manilow's though, wouldn't it? Like, like to... I know. I'm like, this is this has got to be fine. I mean, if you're... If you have any conviction in your stance on, one, you know, COVID vaccine mandates, and I'm sure these kind of slightly unhinged people do... A bit of Manlow isn't going to do it. Um, <laughs> Blunt caught wind of what was happening. So it was actually him that came with the suggestion. So he offered his services to New Zealand. He was like, if this doesn't work, let me know. Via Twitter. Yeah, yeah. yeah, he said, give me a shout if this doesn't work. Classic James Bond. NZ, uh, please. A few hours later, it appeared the singer-songwriter's offer was accepted with your beautiful being played over the loudspeaker. Um, but protesters were undeterred. So fair play to them, I guess. Maybe not. Can you think but, of, um, like, what would drive you away? I think if I had, like, these words by Natasha Bedingfield on loop, I'd be like, I'm going home. See ya. Bad Day by could... Daniel Powter or something like that. I'd be like, I'm, I'm out of here, bye. Oh, insipid. Yeah. I don't know, though. I think... You love all music. It, it just... 
like in that context where it's just a loudspeaker and it's open air, I don't think it's intense enough for it to really annoy me. Like, sure. you know, when you'd, you'd hear like the US military would use it in very kind of controlled circumstances and like properly torture people. With, yeah, they'd like, use like Slayer Metallica, yeah, yeah. But at insane volume levels. I mean, it's more about the kind of the barrage of noise yeah, than actually yeah. just a tune that's playing for like a 15 minute loop of Barry Manilow. Well, I'll do that all night, man. Okay, fine. That's well, grand. how would you feel? Yeah. How would you feel instead, though, about an eighty-minute apparent instant masterpiece from everyone's favorite band at the moment, Big Thief? They've got a new record out. It is, in fact, eighty minutes long, twenty tracks, and as you know, on this show, we adore brevity. So let's see how we get on with this one. How we did get on with this one. The album is called Dragon. You're showing your cards here a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I've had a rough fucking week. Dragon New War Mountain, I Believe in You. That's the name of it. And this song is called Time Escaping. So rapidly dissolving into thin air Turning the two for tape to television Into tunnel vision Taking the new for tactile as revision Working the revision Time What is she on about? It's Big Thief there. Adrienne Lenker, the singer in question. The song is Time Escaping. The record is, as I scroll up again to check it out, Dragon New or Met and I Believe in You. Craig. If you say it in a rush, it's quite enjoyable, actually. I'm, I'm warming to it. Dragon New or Met and I Believe in You. Okay, that's some enthusiasm. Um, apply that level of spirit to your Big Thief primer. The band of the day, the band of the now. Who are they? They are the American band of the moment, yeah. Um, because I think they're kind of like in touch with this musical like heritage and um, also like a big v- vistaed, you know, Main Street approach to rock, folk, you know, taking in Heartland Rock, country certainly abounds on this record. Um, and their influences, I guess, speak to the members being some from, you know, such far-flung places as Minnesota and Texas, and maybe maybe they'll be in the American Song Contest, I don't know. But they straddle a couple of different worlds and critical worlds as well. They're probably, I guess, primarily seen as maybe the current saviours of um, indie to an extent. So they are Brooklyn-based. Uh, they met at Berkeley where they were like studying music. It's a four-piece fronted by Adrian Lenker, who, I mean, could be the next Neil Young, maybe the next Tom York, or maybe a kind of Stephen Merritt. Most importantly, they're a band I've been listening to, Dave, and championing since this podcast started back in 2016, I believe. Is that I feel correct? like their debut. Yeah, their debut came out like early summer, um, you know, we we're only kind of a couple of months into it. And I, I think I remember picking one of their songs for like a Songs of the Week or something like that. That debut was Masterpiece. Um, wasn't quite a Masterpiece, but it was very good. I just kind of took to their quite old-fashioned like alt-rock, really. It was like sturdy songwriting and songs like Paul and Real Love. They weren't really forward-thinking. They didn't seem like a band that would necessarily be built to last critically, but... Um, for what they were, I thought they were very good. Tell the truth, I was kind of surprised then that they continued to release stuff relentlessly and really just get a lot of traction and show themselves to be, I guess, quite inventive. So like Capacity came out in 2017, didn't reinvent the wheel, but kind of gathered great notices. And then the double whammy came in 2019, which was, you know, just before the pandemic, which feels about like, you know, 
50 years ago at this point, but still kind of fairly recently they released two albums, Five Months Apart, which was UFOF, which was like, you know, showed them like this flowering cosmic bent to their music. And then, you know, five months later, we got Two Hands, which was, they said was kind of the earth twin to that record and was quite guitar heavy and earthy. Could have been, you know, Crazy Horse. It could have been Ben's era stuff. And then cue the pandemic. It didn't really slow down their Purple Patch. I think three of the four members have released solo LPs. Like Lenker's been very prodigious. And I think her songs, when she released a solo, they really stand on their own in fairness. And you kind of think the band could put a lick of paint on these, but they're already good to go. I know a lot of people were taken with the Book Meek um, records, guitarist for the band. They reconvened together uh, summer 2020, like pandemic summer. They ended up with something like 45 to 50 songs recorded over the same span of time that was between the previous two records. So this five month period where they were just, it was just flowing out of them. And they've really embraced the sprawl on this one. And all of the comments coming out of the band are like, you know, very kind of highfalutin in terms of them talking about, um, like Lenker saying, you know, I feel like we've all got the same guide, you know, in the band. We just kind of get each other and things click when we record together and they pick different locations around the US and the sessions just yielded so much that like the band are saying every single member has at least a couple of tracks that they're shocked didn't get on this 20 song strong album. Maybe another album's going to follow. And you kind of think, okay, is this just pure indulgence? Are they actually correct? Is this like good judgment on their behalf? Are they in the midst of a huge purple patch? Is there real magic here? And I guess it's the high bar that a lot of people think they maintain, maintained over the course of the 80 minutes. How did you get on with this record, Dave, in a kind of tough week and probably not loving, I guess, feeling a bit averse to going into it to begin with? Did it win you over? Did it break you down at all in a good way? Um, I think I went the other way with it a little bit. Um, okay. I listened to it last Friday when I was working the 7am shift and... You know, I found that my first listen of it, um, while trying my best to, to active listen, but you're also working, um, I found that like it didn't feel like an 80-minute record, which was a good first sign. Um, but like in the days since, and this is not Big Thief's fault, but like I went home last weekend for like my father's fucking month's mind mass, and then, you know, I went mm. back into work, and I've been working on this feature that's been just driving me crazy, and then somewhere along the week I realized that I was having... Um, panic attacks and anxiety was flooding my system and depression was uh, absolutely clawing at my throat and I've found it very difficult to listen to anything this week especially even the stuff I love so um, I don't know if this album was the correct companion but I don't think that there necessarily was one and now in fairness I, I want to be even handed here and say that for example the opening track on the record called Change which I think is an excellent song uh, has a line in it that really hit me like a truck where she says death like a door to a place we've never been before and while I must confess I am currently finding it very hard to find any kind of romantic ideals in death uh, in the wake of the passing of my father which I've obviously spoken about on the show in recent weeks um, a line like that one simultaneously helped me and hurt me um, which is what a great line should do right it should have multi-layered connotations and you apply your own personal level of experience to it and I do appreciate that idea and I appreciate there was a lot of I think there's it's not the only moment on the record that kind of made me 
uh, go to places like that. But also there were days when I just couldn't handle it. Um, and I found it difficult to to stay with. Um, beyond, you know, even that association, uh, like I say, like I've... I always talk on the show about how important I think music is when you're in a, a bad place mentally. And it still is. And I'm not suggesting that it isn't, but I've just found it really hard to actually feel that this week. Um, at the same time, I always like to be challenged by a record. Um, but with this one, I mean, the Big Thief thing, like, I've I, I've never fully got it. Um, I don't fully get it. I don't have an aversion to them, I don't think. Um, and I think I was more into Two Hands than I was into UFOF, maybe. They've got some excellent stuff. Like, I think Not, yeah. for example, I think is one of the best songs of the last few years. Like, it's incredible. And I see completely the value in this band. I see completely the the reasons why people are kind of falling for them as hard as they are. At the same time, though, you know me, something gets hyped up like crazy and becomes the new anointed thing and I can't automatically bristle, um, or I do automatically bristle. Um, and I've just seen some weird takes. I've seen people online being like, oh, it's it's so weird to me how male critter or male fans like flock to this band and, you know, it's uncomfortable how, like, like, like what they say about them and the, especially the fact that there's a queer woman at the front of it. And I'm like, do we, do we need these like shit modern hot takes about Big Thief? I mean, like, can people not just enjoy the winsome folk music for what it is? I don't think people are are doing that. I mean, they are very much the the 4AD band of the moment and I'm sure that their gigs are lined with lads in plaid shirts and beards and stuff but who the fuck cares like who the fuck yeah. cares anymore I hate that fucking tack it's just boring um as for the album I mean look I'll get the obvious thing out of the way it's too long does it need to be an hour and 20 minutes I don't <laughs> think so does it feel like a double album I don't know and I want to and, we'll, and when we get to our top five I think we'll get into distinctions and stuff and I will say that um I listened to the 909 podcast today and they were making some very interesting points about long albums and what constitutes a long album and what is a double album and what isn't. And Andrea Cleary in particular was kind of making the point that like a double album is a double album. Like like it has a distinctive side A and side B. However, on this record, there isn't a distinctive side A and side B, even in a digital space. It's just 20 songs. Here they are. See how you go with it. You kind of maybe have to choose your own adventure at times. Um, and as such, it can help even like a Donda, for example, it just, it can't help sometimes just blur into one big fucking thing. And I wonder if the thread gets too loosened. Maybe that's Big Thief's thing. I mean, like a lot of this does sound like, um, you're wandering through a prairie in the 1950s and you stumble upon these four people. Uh, and I don't, I don't mean this in a patronizing way, but like, I can't help but picture them. This sounds lovely. It yeah. does sound Go nice. On, yeah. I, I can't help but picture them as like some kind of travelers that you meet along the way on your adventure. And, you know, they're playing this music and it's kind of like you hang out with them for a while. At the same time, there are times when I have that same thought process and I'm like, oh, it's the fucking soggy bottom boys from a brother who are there. And I'm not really in the mood right now. So uh, I think they're very admirable and they do interesting things. I don't quite get the religious worship <laughs> for them. I think this album has a lot of good moments, but it has too fucking many moments, Craig. Um, well said, I think. Um, I agree with a lot of your points. I think this is the one from them. Okay. And I was surprised by that because Very interesting. of, you know, going into the length of it, I assumed it was going to get indulgent. I didn't feel that. Um I think some of the points you made about like, and we'll get into it, like the format of what a double album is and... I'll, t I'll take your point that it didn't seem to have two clear halves, but I did actually think if you looked at like um, 
a side A, a side B, a side A, a side B. A lot of the songs did work in kind of clusters for me. So like if you had, I actually, I, th- I think I'm probably going to get the vinyl of this because it feels like a record that I want to have the physical presence of it in my house. Like I really did actually enjoy it, not to spoil the <laughs> review too early into it, but like a song like Sparrow, I can imagine that opening aside and taking on a new lease of life because it's one of the more orthodox ones here. And it can, I think, could get lost in the shuffle quite literally, but it could take on a different resonance just when you have those set little batches of songs. And there's some lovely runs of songs that I'm just like, oh, this is remarkable how they switched up genres and stuff and it works really well. Um, I, I was, I thought... There wasn't any songs I didn't particularly like. There wasn't much I could make the argument that deserved to be cut. Like, I I actually agree with the band that the quality is kind of maintained. It's not game-changing. But it's not kind of once-in-a-generation stuff, I agree. I don't think they are that band that are going to save indie music if it needs saving or that are going to... Yeah, they don't. Of course they don't. That's very lofty stuff. But I guess they're they're part of that conversation, right? Well, let me ask you this, though. I mean, like, in terms of saying you wouldn't cut any tracks or whatever, and I'm not suggesting that there are duds here, per se, but, like, is it distinctive enough, you know? I think actually they're quite fleet of foot in terms of, I mean, there's stuff here that sounds trip hoppy. There's some like great shoegaze songs. There's times oh, yeah, I felt sorry, like... There is one of my early notes when I was listening to it, even the first time last Friday was, I was like, that sounds like a Muddy Valentine song kind of. Yeah, yeah. Like there's moments where you're just like, oh, well, they're actually, actually a lot large kind of parts of this record. I was like, oh, are they having like a cure phase? Maybe I'm just, having, we established I'm having a cure phase. You're always having a cure phase. For sure. But um, there's definitely nods to kind of British stuff. I think they're really stretching themselves in a certain regard. Um, but yeah, I I don't think this is era defining, um, but I think I like that. And I like that it's it sounds to me like it's music that is Teflon to the hot takes that you mentioned there at the top, which are also exhausting to me. And every time I listen through this record and I was continuously listening through this record... It was taking me away from those kind of conversations and that like, we're now at a point where, you know, kind of post-pandemic, not quite post-pandemic, but we're maybe getting back to some more normality. And there's this, you know, the uber kind of relentless connectedness is ramping back up. And this was a nice pause for me. Um, When you're talking about that prairie, I'm like, yeah, actually, now that I think about it, this could be like a Red Dead side quest, (laughs) like a very pleasant, chill thing. It's like campfire escapism. It's just a really good kind of evening's company. And what struck me as well about this record was, okay, so you think of a double album. Why does an artist go into um, a project going, okay, we're going to release a double album? Is it going to be, I think there's a few different reasons you do it, right? You might have a grand kind of concept where you're like, I've got this artistic vision, you know, of such breadth that I need like extra runtime to kind of articulate it and like, you know, let my artistry sprawl. Or maybe you kind of fancy yourself as just like, you know, this is my state of the union address. I am the voice of a generation. Let's sum it all up with this kind of huge, huge heavy tome. Um, and I felt like maybe Big, Big Thief were a band primed to go in that direction, just because they're very serious about their art, which I think is fair juice to them. Then also the, the other direction is, 
you get lost, you know, you lose yourself, you lose your kind of um, self-editing, you get a bit kind of wanky about the confidence you have in all of the songs you're writing. And it's just, you know, I can, tr- I can turn my hand to anything. I not only contain multitudes, but they're all very interesting. That feels like later kind of career bloat, and I didn't think they were there. Um, but I did come into this double record thinking it's going to be quite serious. Um, it's going to be a big statement, and I think they're going to stumble. And a few songs in, when I realised that like a lot of these songs are quite lighthearted Whimsical, and like actually yeah. funny, and they're not po-faced in a way that previously I thought Big Teeth can often be, um, it was a new side to them. Like it's just a it kind of it opened up the entire record to me. It kind of fed into this feeling that the songwriting is a completely natural thing. It feels quite timeless. It's this free-flowing work that isn't poured over. It's a kind of, you know, chaotic and creative without being too messy or aimless at times. And it has, I just found it really charming. Like, it has that road movie feel. And I think that's because, you know, a lot of their stuff is folky and that great American kind of cosmic music. They tap into that. Um, And I think, you know, a lot of the signposts they use just lend themselves to those prairies and those open vistas. But it was just, it worked for me. It really did. Um, I thought there was a lot of variety. And every time I come back to it and I keep coming back to it, I'm like... This is a hugely strong body of work. I can't, I can't really find the criticisms. How do you, um, um, how do you rate Adrian Lenker as a lyricist and a vocalist in general at this point uh, of the journey? Um, vocally, I think she's got quite a unique voice. I don't know how flexible she is. She's, she's actually the anchor for a lot of these songs. I think because she's such a kind of unique signifier and she does a lot of similar things I think melodically a lot of the time that the songs remain Big Thief even when they try their hand at kind of trip hoppy things or you know they introduce kind of some skittering drum drum machine or they go full like cartoonish country with like boinging sounds and the whole thing in the back um, it's still Spud Big Infinity Thief because in particular, of her. yeah yeah which, which, yeah. which is, which is I, skirting <laughs> the line but they just get away with it I think like if this was 20 songs of just her on acoustic I don't think I could put up with that whatsoever but the (laughs) players are really adept and I think they keep switching things up and I think they know how to augment the sound in a way that it does feel distinctive these kind of little clusters I keep talking about they do move and shift and constantly surprise you as a lyricist I think she's really strong and I think she has those she comes up with those kind of one-liners those images those kind of almost cones because they're so like nature inflected and timeless that you're just like it she did stop me in my tracks a couple of times and i do like the fact that she seems like she spends more time reading like old farmers almanacs than like her timeline (laughs) you know what i mean there's no real hot takes in her writing they could these songs could be set anytime really i like i think there's a reference to like an interconnection or an internet connection at one point on one song but the height of technology throughout it is like television signals i think at a push these could be songs from the 50s from the 60s or from last year and that really worked for me. I found that refreshing. I didn't feel like there was a narrative being pushed. Um, Let me ask you this. I like how... Let me ask you yeah, this, right? So, and I'm not... And this isn't me being cynical because I ultimately I do like the band, but um, how do I ask this question without, without, without it not being reductive and weird? 
what like what what is the big thief identity at this point like who like if 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 you knew someone who'd never heard them and they were like i keep seeing this fucking name pop up and i feel like it's a bit overwhelming oh my god the new album's 80 minutes long and they released two albums last year where do i even begin like what are they about like i don't think that there's any any gimmickry going on here but there are detractors who do think that they're just hipster band du jour and they are very much like some weird hoedown throwback americana bullshit like what like, do they, like, just based off the point that you made previously, like, do they exist in some kind of retrofitted thing that is authentic as well at the same time? Like, 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 what is the Big Thief manifesto? Does that even matter at all? I think what they do really well is mix um, earthy, well-established, rootsy music with a bit of magic and kind of a bit of a kind of metaphysical outlook that provides you with enough left turns that you're like just really kind of illuminate in different ways. I think they're they're part of a lineage that's you could almost go back to like the Grateful Dead in terms of American music where it's that Graham Parsons thing of it being like a great you know great American cosmic music where it elevates the stuff beyond country country cliches because uh, I don't know how to get to the heart of it. It's like you know you feel you just feel like there's LSD in their drinking water or something like that. <laughs> nice. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's, they do, they do a kaleidoscopic jumble really well. And um, they're clearly a band that also had, you know, a goth period where they were just listening to fucking um, British music from the 1980s or new romantic stuff. I think they take in a huge array of influences. So they're part of a proud tradition. I think if you like Wilco, you will like Big Thief. I think if you liked Grateful Dead stuff, I think if you like Isaac Brock, just kind of great American outsiders. I think that's what they are. And I think that's kind of proud tradition that um, I think we need a bit of that sometimes. It's a, it's a fresh kind of perspective. Um, that's why I'm into them. But I realise that's a total ramble. That's very nicely put for a ramble. Um, and as the king of rambles, uh, I don't think it was too much of a ramble. But... What number are you putting on this, Craig? That's the real question here. Is it a masterpiece? This this is a very easy nine for Whoa, me. Oh, okay. I nearly go 9.5. I think this is very good. Holy like, fuck. I had a very <laughs> sober look at it like yesterday where I was like, I'm finding it very difficult to criticise this. Have you ever given a 9.5 no... on this show? I don't know if you have. I don't know. Wow. Did Blonde get 9.5? I, I don't know. So long ago, we were still young bucks. 9.5. Well, my thinking, yeah, my thinking was just like, by any measure, right, from the context of my two decades of trying to like forensically study the canon of music, like what's, you know, in good taste and critically acclaimed, I think there's grounds for this being a classic. And I think they do enough different stuff that it's not derivative. I think there is a big thief sound, and it's very, very good at the moment. Wow, they stole your heart. So I'm somewhere yeah. in between a seven and an eight on this one for all the reasons aforementioned okay. listed. I think this week in particular was a very tough album to spend time with in that capacity. However, I did it passed the five listen test despite its uh, crazy length. But um, given you know your your abundance here, I will obviously have to revisit it. Because it's clearly going to end up in our end of year conversation. <laughs> we, I mean, possibly, yeah. yeah spoiler. <laughs> um, yeah, I'd say like 7.5, but like I admire it. I respect the craft hugely. I just wish I fell into the world. And I thought I was going to. On that first listen, I was like, oh, this feels like, you know, 
uh, wa- like water I can dip my dip my toes in, get my dungarees on, sling a banjo over my shoulder. Get your LSD on. Uh, yeah, drink a <laughs> drink a big fucking jug full of LSD. Um, Picture of LSD. I, I get what you're saying about the vinyl thing because I do think that might make it more palatable and might make it a bit more structured than just listening to it on Spotify when you're walking around the street feeling horrific about yourself. So I guess we'll see. So for now, I'd say like pay more attention to Craig's score than mine, but. You know, it's it's clearly a work of art. I just don't know how artful it is currently for me at this at this point in time. That's fair. That's very and fair. And it does open up the question though about what's a double album, what's a long album, why do it at all? Which takes us into our top five, Craig. It is top five long albums. Is there anything you want to say at the outset? Or actually, let me let me just uh, step all over yeah, you. Yeah, go for it. Because uh, how do you feel about you know? There may be some. I'm I'm looking forward to seeing how we differ on this one because, like, long album, double album soundtrack albums deluxe editions remix albums like where do you draw the line what's in what's out and or is it just simply like this is long that's it that's all i fucking need when i instantly thought of du- like love and there i said it long albums i went to double albums that's how i think of it because i think of those like um self-conscious epics i suppose okay and it does i think it does all come back to formats right so if you know when vinyl ruled the roost it was you could have 45 minutes of music so the double became you know sub 90 uh blonde on blonde might have been the first one where it's like okay i've got kind of two sets of songs and that's how it was seen but once you get into like the cd era and a cd could hold i think max what 80 minutes of music But also there was this thing of just like, particularly in the 90s, people wanted their value for money. So there was a lot of long albums, like a lot of long 90s albums are, I think, a case of like bonus tracks and trying to like just shove everything on there and like lots of skits. I mean, you know, when hip hop kind of started taking over as the primary force, you just had these quite bloated pieces that are doing a very different thing to the, you know, um, double album um, moment that a rock band would have in the 70s to be like, we are very serious and we have something important to say. So with that in mind, I don't know, Dave. I <laughs> I ended up kind of generally, although I just realised one is only 67 minutes, like post an hour, I think, something that feels like you've been on a proper journey um, something that you probably wouldn't get through in a single commute. And um, yeah, I tried to steer clear of things that it, that felt too compilation-y as well. Do you know what I mean? So I was thinking of like the beta bands, um, Tree Peas, and I mean, that's a compilation of Tree EPs. <laughs> the Weekends trilogy as well being the same. I'm like, no, nah, that's kind of a cop-out. I mean, they're released as albums. They feel like their first kind of albums, but by the same token, artistically, they weren't made that way. So I did try and hone in on deliberate artistic statements. And that's my rambling long albums explainer. What did you go for? Uh, kind of a mixture of things. I will say that the soundtrack or the, or the score was not off the table for me. And I okay, may have included okay. one of those. <laughs> you did. It may have happened. <laughs> I guess we'll find out. Is. I agree with you on the compilations thing. The Weekends trilogy didn't even come into the conversation for me, brilliant as it is. Because yeah, it did feel yeah. like, well, this is a stitching together of things that previously existed, etc. I think it needs to be one body of work that was conceived to be one body of work. 
and whether it was split into two albums, whether it is a double album. I mean, Stadium Arcadium is obviously my number one. I'm just going to spoil that straight away because, you know, how could an album be improved upon? Uh, maybe a third uh, disc. Well, we'll we'll find out <laughs> when the Red Hot Chili Peppers return with their... It's going to be a double album as well, oh, is it? Oh, Christ, the, the is it? One, I, think. I don't know. I think there's at least 17 or 18 songs Excellent. on it. Yeah. Well, we, sh- we should probably yeah. review it for all time's sake when that comes out. But in the meantime... Um, for sure. Yeah, my thing had to be substantial over an hour uh, makes sense as a body work from A to B and is making a statement of its own and, and is tied to the world that it creates or a world that it might be associated with so with that in yeah, mind yeah. Um, I'll kick us off and um, we mentioned it. Hot Press quite a lot last week and the Hot Press office so it feels only fitting that I throw back to 2011 when I was an intern in that office I think I did review this album for the magazine and it's a significant one for me here we go yeah So yeah, my intro gave that one away there for Craig. It is M83. The record is Hurry Up, We're Dreaming. It's from 2011. uh, 73 minutes and 20 seconds long. 22 tracks in total. That one that you heard there was the track called Intro which is the first track on the album featuring Zola Jesus on vocals. And it is the record with Midnight City, which I believe is track two, of course. And that was a weird thing for me as a big M83 fan from like, I would say the mid 2000s onwards when my good friend Adam put uh, Don't Say Was uh, From The Flames on a mix CD he made me. And I was like, what is this? And how do I get more of this, please? Um, Craig also said to me there off mic, he said he thought it would be higher in my top five. And the reason that it isn't is because I kind of this is like I struggle with this double album because like to me this marks the end of a bit of an era for M83 uh it's the sixth record 2011 and Anthony Gonzalez who is like the leader of this project uh, this is kind of like there hasn't really been a very good M83 album since I don't think I mean you had Junk which fucking sucks in 2016 I think it was and then there was like Digital Shades Volume 2 which you know is an ambient collection of things and it is very interesting music it's a sequel to a record that previously exists but they haven't quite clicked the way that they used to and on this album uh, they do quite a lot but not fully for me I, I, I think it's a bit of a flawed statement but i think it is a very interesting ambitious statement it's one that would pave the way for i mean midnight city became like the most ubiquitous song ever for a while i think it's like it was in was the fucking theme tune to made in chelsea for a while and stuff i mean it was just and it was using the olympic ceremony it was like you tell me dave but like but like that was never supposed to happen and then it was a case yeah. of like yeah. m83 suddenly became like cool mainstream to a degree i mean even like uh, Anthony Gonzalez has talked about how having spent 29 years of my life in France I moved to California a year and a half before the making of this album and I was excited and inspired by so many different things by the landscape by the way of life by live shows by movies by the road trips I took alone I was feeling alive again and this is I feel something you can hear on the album uh, which is true and M83 went on to tour with likes of the Killers and Kings of Leon and stuff which again just felt like a strange thing he of course ended up scoring a Tom Cruise blockbuster and gave out about it because he was like oh I can't believe I got studio notes it's like it's 
it's of what? <laughs> like, <laughs> and also, like, it's just some really good stuff on the Oblivion score. Very naive. But um, he said that this album was a, was a way of remembering his childhood, which is very interesting because you would have thought that Saturday's Equal Youth, which was the album from 2008, yeah. would have done that already. But that's also the kind of beauty of the best M83 stuff. I mean, for anyone who somehow does not know, um, I've banged on about M83 repeatedly on this podcast, but like... Uh, beautiful skyscraping French electro, very poignant, very innocent, very kind of thrown back to idyllic days that you either did or didn't have. And I mean, like I said, you know, in the current kind of place I'm in at the moment, I'm I'm probably going to listen to M83 quite a bit over the weekend because I do find that it can be a, a very uh, powerful um, audio space to go to. And yeah. Hurry Up or Dreaming, like, I mean... What's funny, though, for me about this one is that, like, when I first heard that track that you heard there, when I first heard that song, I remember very, very specifically walking down the street in Drada, and it was, like, a fucking cold day or whatever. And I, or, and I just remember listening to that first track and being like, this is going to be a really important album. This is going to be incredible. I, I'm about to go on this unbelievable journey, and I know it's going to affect me for the rest of my life. And then that didn't quite happen. <laughs> like, yeah. It was just, in the end, quite good. And to me, it's a great example of a double album that would be so much better as a single album. Like, I, like there are so many great tracks on here, and I think you can condense it down to 10, and it would be a classic. It would be like a 10 out of 10 record. And it record. would lose nothing from that kind of sense of, you know... <sighs> I mean... Just the opulence and how enveloping the sound is and how like dreamlike and you can just kind of, it has that kind of nocturnal thing as well where you can kind of really get swept away in it, I find now. I just, I just don't think it fully justifies its, its vision. I, I, I think yeah. it's there and I can see it in parts. And what I've also done, by the way, just for the listener's benefit, in case they want to hear this, is in case you're like, well, that sounds like a really fucking long album. Uh, I've picked five standout tracks from each of my five oh, records. Nice. So like the five essentials I would recommend off this one would be intro that you heard there. I have to include mm-hmm. Midnight City because it is a genuinely incredible pop song, uh, even if you've heard it to death. Uh, there's a song called Wait, which is just absolutely beautiful. A song called right, Splendor, yeah. which is even more beautiful somehow, very melancholic and beautiful that way. And I would probably go for uh, Raconte-moi une histoire, which I cannot yeah. do. It's tell me a story in French, and I can do a French accent, as you can tell, which is this beautiful kind of childlike thing with a childlike voice on it. And it just has all of the encapsulation of what M83 is. At a push, maybe include Steve McQueen as well, because it's a great track. But like, I don't know. To me, this is simultaneously like the M83 at its most pure, but also at its most flying too close to the sun. And I think it kind of paved the way for the pratfalls that would follow over the next few years. I desperately want them to get back to a level of incredible quality that may be gone forever. But the run, though, of the self-titled record up until this, an incredible 10 years, and this was both pedestal and just... I don't know, Gravestone or something. It's weird. Yeah, I was going to ask. It's just like, actually is for you the the kind of jump the shark moment for M83, like passages on this record as opposed to Junk, which I know you just hated. But this was like the warning signs were there. Mm. When you were saying... And I still... Sorry, you were having, I think yeah, this is... Up. I really fucking like this album quite a lot. There's just... Yeah. weird little touch points too but sorry go on I know what you're, like, when you were saying you know you're kicking off this record and you're like having all these thoughts of like this is going to be a really important record that's going to you know mean so much to me for years to come and 
Anthony Gonzalez was clearly saying the same things as he was making it. <laughs> yeah. Like he wanted this to be that important record. It's so deliberate. And it probably is maybe, for a lot of people as well, which is why yeah. I kind of feel, you know, I'm like, if you're getting the experience that I got previously with like, with, you know, before the dawn heals us, well then amazing. I'm delighted for you, you know, but like, I've just heard it done better before. Maybe I expected too much from it. You know, it's a weird one. But I, I think having a push-pull, complicated relationship with an album of this length is kind of part of the experience, really. Like, you know, like just to have that kind of thing of like, oh man, yes, but no. Oh no. Huh. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, that's my number five. All right, we've got some weird synchronicity going on because um, one of the records he was striving for is my number five. And I also think it's a bit flawed. And I also think it might be in your list, but here it is. <laughs> Yeah, gotta give the devil his due. Good old Billy. Um, he can write an album, he can write a double album, he can write a triple album, he can write Melancholy and The Infinite Sadness. That's from The Smashing Pumpkins. Um, two hours long, over two hours long. And that was Porcelina of the Vast Oceans, which is just like, yes, you want titles like that on your gigantic kind of proggy album. And you want to sound like that on at least one of the tracks and probably many of the tracks, which is, you know the switch up of Jimmy Chamberlain just with the epic kind of Moby Dick-esque kind of existential saga thing going on. It's them in total, like um, John Bonham, Led Zeppelin, physical graffiti territory. And I think, what is it about this record? The thing about this record for me isn't so much those gargantuan moments and it's a gargantuan album. It's the kind of it's the soothing of the brow. It's like the hushed lullabies. It's the light and shade. And there's something hugely compelling about it. I was going to say, despite how um, foreboding it can feel and like overwhelming, maybe because of it. I think there's a weird gravity to the record where I actually do genuinely often find myself going, I am going to stick on melancholy tonight. <laughs> I fall <laughs> Sorry, is that you warning the rest of your this. house? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Clear out. <laughs> The warning goes out, so just like, if anyone needs me, I'm going yeah. But it's, you know, it's, I think as a record, it's like a bed that you can sink into. And it's obviously a kind of night time record uh, to an extent. And I don't think I've ever gotten through it when I've actually stuck it on. Um, that's not a bad thing. It's just because I, I fall asleep. Um, some humongous songs on this. And it was, I think I'm right in saying their biggest record, coming off the back of... Well, Pisces Iscariot came out, um, which was like a kind of compilation thing, which was huge and very high quality. And my God, Billy Corgan was in some incredible purple patch throughout the mid-90s. But Siamese Dream being the kind of the previous album proper, which was a huge hit for them, um, sold something like three million records. And just everything around the making of this album is him 
having colossal ambition and they literally got off tour and he went straight into the studio and was working, you know, round the clock, um, like six days a week. Um, I think he only took something like three days off after like they headlined Lollapalooza and he's like, okay, now I'm going to make my, um, you know, album that's going to be on a par with the kind of grand kind of Queen albums or like the Beatles White Album and his label were just like... Double albums aren't going to sell, mate. Don't do it. He stuck to his guns and I think it was number one. I think it went, yeah, it went to number one on the Billboard 200, went on to sell over 10 million copies. And that is mad to me that that happened in, you know, okay, the 90s was a long time ago now, but it had the hits to pull it over. Um, 1979, um, was just, you know, a really kind of streamlined pop song. And I think when you think of a lot of the songs in this, like Bullet uh, with Butterfly Wings, they are quite concise and well orchestrated. But then you've got all these huge passages that you can just get lost in, these vast oceans of song, and the band are playing really well. And he's actually letting them play in the record, unlike Siamese Dream, which is, you know, a great moment. It's called, uh, um, it's called Artistic and Personal Growth, I believe, Craig. Yeah, yeah. He was a very healthy individual at this point. It's like, in terms of alt rock, I do think the fact he was around at a time when Grunge was saying you shouldn't sell out and all that, I do think he was reined in somewhat, which is a good thing. Um, but I, I, you know what, I always loved his kind of bombast and his ambition and he did have the talent for a long time to back it up and fair play to him, someone needs to do those kind of records and I'd rather it was him than Muse. Sure, <laughs> yeah. I mean? Oh, they've never, have they ever done a double album? I know they had the Hullabaloo oh, soundtrack, which is kind of like right. a mishmash of things, but... I don't think they've done an official double album, but I'm sure it's coming. I have to wait for my number one to find uh, out. <laughs> um, it's funny because you started off by describing Billy Corgan like, let's give the devil his due. I think it's time to upgrade this person to an angel on the show and a patron saint. Patron, patron saint of the show. Of the yeah, show. 100%. Because, like, honestly, <laughs> Billy Corgan, Billy Corgan uh, he's earned it. Like, I didn't pick this because I felt I was overloading on Pumpkin's love in recent episodes and stuff. And I, okay, maybe it's too enough. obvious. And also, I was like, Craig will probably pick it, and I'm delighted that you did. Um, honestly, man, like, honestly, the more I go back to Smash Pumpkins, the more I'm like, Jesus Christ, some of these songs are just perfect. They are masterpieces. They're incredible. Unbelievable. Like, so good. Yeah. Um, yeah. Amazing choice. Shocked that it's number five, though. What? <laughs> good stuff to come. <laughs> okay, what a tease. That's your number four. Uh, my number four is uh, 279 minutes and 53 seconds long, baby. Let's go. First of my soundtrack picks, Craig, or score, if you will. Uh, this is taken from the Final Fantasy VII score by, oh, yeah, of course, by the composer yeah. Nobuo Umatsu. Uh, that's the Shinra Corporation associated with the evil Shinra building. Uh, I feel like even people who aren't into role-playing games had a moment with Final Fantasy VII in 1997, maybe even the remake a couple of years ago. Um, and obviously we talked about it on our video game music episode two years ago at some point, yeah. which is a really fun episode. I'd encourage people to go back and check it. I picked Eric's theme for that one in, the, in our top five. Beautiful. Um, but the, music, like, the reason I picked this was because, first of all, I have listened to this outside of the 
game playing experience. Uh, 85 tracks, by the way, <laughs> which is insane. Um, but the thing is, like, I think this is one of the best examples of world building I've ever experienced um, outside of everything else involved in that game. And I remember very specifically playing through the game at the time and just being like, I didn't know a video game could could do this or could have this level of additional production and characterization in the form of music. And all of the individual themes, whether it's for the characters themselves, the villains, as you heard there, or the places that you go to, to me are so distinctive and so synonymous with the game as much as the story is, as much as the artwork is, as much as the lore that has followed for years and years and years. I think that's one of the reasons why it is such a special standout game. Um, And I do, I have gone back to this at times and just thrown on like my favorite kind of pieces of music from it because I think that they kind of work by themselves. Uh, To give some kind of background to the composition of this... um, Apparently there was a plan to use an unnamed famous vocalist for the ending theme to the game as a theme song, but there was all kinds of problems as to why that didn't happen. Uh, Overall, the the composer Nobu Uematsu has said that, like, moving into the PlayStation era, it changed video game music in terms of, like, technology available, budgets available, etc. So, like, it it allowed this kind of level of scope if your company had the money, essentially. Uh, His approach to composing the game's music was to treat it like a film soundtrack and compose songs that reflected the mood of the scenes rather than trying to make strong melodies to quote-unquote define the game. And, you know, like, I think over the course of it, he was in search of this kind of idea of realism, despite it existing in this fantastical world and this kind of, you know hero's journey kind of story that we've seen a million times and it just stands so strongly like i mean like like uh he's got a very nice quote uh which he says that the making the music for this was his quote-unquote greatest harvest uh to date in his career and it it does feel that way it just (laughs) yeah and kind of sinister as well um but it does kind of feel that way greatest Greatest harvest. harvest it does feel great white buffalo it does kind of feel like a little bit like um this chapter system of things that is already in this massive world like this huge scope yeah but it, but it just has the signatures and they come back and forth and they just add this new level of either tension or whimsy or serious emotion i mean obviously like you know we've talked about Eric's theme and the whole shocking moment in the game it's still referred to as a shocking moment all these years on um and it just grounds you so like my five standouts just for the record would be uh this one, the Shinra Corporation that you heard, Eris's theme, the Genova boss battle music, which is like this kind of weird new rave thing. Uh, the main... Very stressful. Yeah, the main theme, the kind of prelude that plays when you start the game, because it does feel like you're about to go to this different world. And you got to pick one winged angel, Sephiroth's big fucking bad religious craziness that somehow manages to outdo Al Pacino and the Devil's Advocate for that level of chaos. But I think this has its place in the world while creating one all of its own. I think it's magnificent. And I did debate, I did think, am I cheating here by picking a a soundtrack, let alone a video game one, one that is obviously segmented and broken up in this way. It could only have it a a huge length. And I must confess, I don't know if I've ever sat down and listened to all 280 minutes of it in one sitting, but I've sank so many fucking hours into that game. And I'm playing it again at the moment on Switch. Like it's... It, it holds up and the music is such a it's such a great reminder of a time and a feeling that you're in you're in safe hands and you're going to go to really strange places and i think that stuff can actually make or break an experience like of that of that kind of thing if you're if you're going to like sit there for hours and hours and hours on end you need these kind of dopamine rushes and this does it perfectly it's just beautifully composed and i love the time like the time of it like the kind of whether it was limitations or new technology or whatever that sound because there's new you know there's live versions and there's orchestral stuff and there's new stuff in the remake and they do really cool interesting stuff 
but the original music of the time is just, it's so beautifully put together. I love it. Well said. And that quote about it being like, you could approach it like a film soundtrack. I think actually, you know, with this, there's far greater scope and it actually can mean more because it is somehow more connected to just your standard album, I think, because when you're playing through the game, you're sinking so many hours into it, you're interacting with it. It's part of memories that you are creating yourself. Um, so it brings you back to kind of weirdly different places and times, even if you've never left your couch. So in that way, it's not really like a film soundtrack. It is more like an album that you've been living with. And I love so much of the stuff on this. Um, I remember when the game came out. I remember before the game came out and like buying computer game magazines and like seeing the screenshots of it and not believing that... It was like there was the capabilities to create something like this and that it would even approach like this universe that was being promised. And the fact it lived up to it yeah. once it came so, out, yeah. it couldn't. It's a, it's a miracle of a game and it's um, a beautiful, beautiful, heavenly soundtrack. Devilish as well at times, as you said, over the course of how many? Three hours? 200? Oh, actually way more than three hours. How, how long the is video it? video game itself. No, the soundtrack. Oh, yeah. Well, it's uh, 280 minutes. Is that like four and a half hours? Okay. I'm not very good at maths. What can I say? Quality and quantity. Um, My number four then. And um, in contrast to like the bombastic ache of the previous record, here's something a little more playful on an album that's ostensibly apocalyptic as well. Why, Craig, who's this hot new artist you've unearthed for your fourth choice here? Yeah, my apologies to Ray Davies, uh, another very modern artist who has been usurped or at least equaled in terms of my number of picks. It's Prince. He's back in my top five reckoning. It's Sign of the Times. It's just a shade over 80 minutes. And it's like a really, I think, old fashioned double album in a sense that like, I think Prince was someone that was very aware of the canon and expectations around like, you know, an artist that was going to have a legacy and what goes into creating a classic, be it, you know, rock, R&B, soul, funk, all that kind of stuff. He was a canny operator. Um, When this came out, I think it was like 87. And it just felt like throughout the 80s, he was ticking boxes to kind of make himself immortal just with every release in terms of songbook, but also the discography, the whole kind of package. Um, then interesting, I think, in the 90s where he had all those kind of record label pains um, and then his kind of fascination with the internet and taking back kind of control in that way and having Paisley Park as this external like monument to his artistry uh, where he could, you know, do nightly kind of gigs and the whole place was wired for sound. I think he turned more inward and just started releasing things a bit more in slapdash fashion and there was a lot of um, material and it was a bit more indulgent and somehow less immaculate. But this was, I think, the sweet spot where he was just recording stuff at an absolute rate of knots, but also he had the kind of quality control to know when to, you know, what the collection should be. Like, there was a lot that went into Sign of the Times. So it's 80 minutes long, but it could have been far longer. Um, 
so it, you know it came from sessions um, that were going to be like bigger box sets there was the Dream Factory that was due to come out uh, there was this triple album Crystal Ball which probably exists on the internet at this point but um, I can't imagine it kind of improves on this and also some of the songs were pulled from Camille which was going to be this like debut album for me where uh, it was him uh, taking on this kind of female character and there's a lot of songs on this where he does that kind of high-pitched voice and I think does it really in a mature, interesting, kind of emotionally complex way where he looks at his own relationship with women and some of his inadequacies and you know, channels his own kind of empathy for the opposite sex and just people in general into these songs. And um, so you've got that going on. You've got the title track, which is him looking at the state of the world and like at a time during the Cold War and the AIDS crisis happening where it just seemed like everything was genuinely falling apart, how different times are now. And him doing a bit of social commentary, which he didn't often do. But then rather than having the whole album be this kind of didactic thing where it's, you know, as we touched on previously, this kind of state of the union thing, it's like, no, he's in this kind of, you know, borderline dystopia. And what's he going to do? He's going to, you know, um, get up to some sleazy stuff. He's going to meet his girlfriend. He's just going to wander about the town. He's going to live in the hellish landscape that is the world and do interesting things in it. Um so you've, you know, aside from all of that, you've got like really taut, like concise pop songs. It's very, very listenable. It's very catchy. It flies by. It's he just dumped um, the revolution. So somehow it feels more sparse than his previous albums. Like it feels it's it's not as big. It's this kind of like it's drum machines. There's lots of space. It's lean. Um it's, it's very much him needing to pick all the right notes because it's as much about the kind of space that's there. And he picks all the right notes, Dave. I feel like I feel like Blonde, I feel it starts here. I feel like Frank Ocean starts here. I feel like every kind of compelling artist that can really get at the human condition but do it in a kind of a sexy way to a degree. Um, this is it. Like, this is the starting point. Yeah, I mean, unlike the, uh, the the filmmakers of the motion picture Oblivion to Anthony Gonzalez, I have no notes, Craig. I <laughs> uh, couldn't possibly uh, give you any kind of constructive feedback beyond what you've just said. And I will say as well, uh, you've you've made me feel better about my next pick in terms of, you know, repeat offenders on these lists. So, because I was enough. like, can I really? And I thought, yeah, I can. Here's my number three. It's our old friend Trent Reznor back on the scene and truly, truly, big Prince fan, <laughs> truly wearing this together now by Nine Inch Nails, taken from the record, the double record, The Fragile, which came out, Craig, what year was it? Um, this was 1999, Summer was Time it? for Humanity, indeed. Aye! It sure was. <laughs> uh, it is a double album. It's 25 tracks long. It's 103 minutes and 39 seconds. And it was subject to a very sniffy pitchfork review at the time, I believe. Um, one of those, you know, cusp of the millennium, where cooler than you bullshit things that they've since walked back with a, a reissue 
review in recent years, recognizing that it is in fact a great record. Um, and it is a great record. Uh, Reznor said that it felt like a sequel to the downward spiral. Uh, he said, um, you know, that was a concept album about uh, dealing with his personal issues, including depression, angst, and drug abuse. Um, and it kind of, you know, where do you go from there? I guess you double down with a double album. And I will say, I mean, on the whole double album thing, this one I see more as a double album than some of the others that we've even talked about, whether it be M83, uh, Big Thief and so on. It makes sense to me the way this one is split into two. And even like my my standout picks mostly come from the first half of it. Like I'd go with Wearing This Together that you heard there, The Day the World Went Away, Just Like You Imagined. Um, La Mer is another track I would pick, which is a fucking absolutely stunning, beautiful, beautiful piece of work, uh, which he himself has talked about. Prior to his marriage, like he spoke about this track and he, he said, um, about 10 years ago or so, I locked myself away in a house on the ocean. Um, I said I was trying to write some music, some which wound up on the fragile, but what I was really doing was trying to kill myself. And the whole time I was away by myself, I managed to write one song, which is this song. So when I play it, I feel pretty weird about it because it takes me back to the pretty dark and awful time in my life. It's weird to think how different things are now. I'm still alive. I haven't died yet. And I'm afraid to go back to that place because it feels kind of haunting to me. But I'm going to go back and I'm going to get married there. And I guess he did, um, wow. which is amazing. And like, not to put too fine a point on it, but in the week I'm having, you know, that quote really fucking hit me like a train. Um, yeah. And I find that with Nine Inch Nails, as I've said numerous times in this show, um, for an act that are so associated with, and rightly so, I mean, Reznor has never been shy about where he was at when he wrote a lot of his music. Um and continues to write very kind of challenging, aggressive, industrial, fucking harrowing at times in its lyrical content and its musical approach. I've often found, whether it's Nine Inch Nails, whether it's Converge or whoever, Slipknot as well, of course, Dillinger's Gay Plan, I I, I often find um, something quite beautiful in in this kind of murk and mire. Like, I, it, it doesn't register to me as... Uh, hateful or angry or destructive you know like even though like those emotions are in there like like I don't listen to this music to feel bad I don't listen to this music to yeah. to be dragged down I, I listen to this music to feel better um, because I recognize that it's actually about hope a lot of the time at least that's what I take from it and it actually is about trying to find a way to, to pick yourself up and Reznor has been such a huge proponent of that for me and I recollect the fragile which admittedly is way too fucking dense because there's just too much on it <laughs> like which is the problem quote unquote with some of these um it can really take you over and i do find that like splitting it into two in the way that it is split into two makes a lot of sense because it's almost like okay cool i've gone to that place for a while and i need a breather and here it is and there's a lot there's actually like quite a lot of um it, maybe it paved the way for some of the ghosts kind of stuff but like there's a lot of instrumentals on this. There's a lot of kind of moments of him not being present vocally and lyrically, um, which I don't know if it was a deliberate choice, but it works quite well. And you can kind of see the kind of seedings of him as a as a composer for films and a, a, as someone who kind of crafts these soundtracky kind of spaces. Um, and I do think it is like Nine Inch Nails and Reznor kind of operating in that kind of purple patch at the peak of his powers. I mean, it follows the downward spiral, which most people think is the masterpiece. There's a long break between this one and With Teeth, which is actually my favorite Nine Nails record. And it's kind of the one that kind of, I kind of came along at that point a little bit afterwards and I kind of worked backwards through them. Um, this yeah. is a very tough album, as you would expect from anything released by Nine Nails during this time period. But like I say, I do think those cracks lighter in there. And I think that even from a purely adrenaline focused point of view, there's so much on this album 
to charge you up. It's funny as well, because like the song Wearing This Together Now, that was used on a fucking trailer for like the first Avengers movie. Um, just like you imagine was used on the trailer for like 300. I mean, the, the, the day the world went away was used in the trailer for the terrible Terminator salvation. Like there's so much here that is just like associative with like a visual dynamic and just grafts itself on so, so well. But to me, it doesn't feel hollow at all. Um, yeah, so for a record called The Fragile, uh, I think it's got an awful lot of integrity and an awful lot of spirit to it. So approach with caution, maybe. But, you know, you, you, you'll find the frequencies. They're definitely there. And you, he's kind of grasping, or there's kind of the, the start there of his like soundtrack work, and he's taking it in that direction, I guess. I, I was just wondering if, because obviously he's, you know, uh, a keen music fan himself was he approaching this like this is going to be nine inch nails like rock opus do you know what i mean is this like the master kind of statement or was it just like this is the document of everything i need to get off my chest yeah i mean i have to assume it's more the latter it's interesting because like in yeah. terms of apparently it did a, like it debuted at number one or something but i think commercially might have been a bit of a disappointment for the for the label or something and there was talk of not being able to tour it properly. And I think he put a lot of his own money into it because he was like, oh, no, I'm not going to fucking, I'm not going to shortchange the fans or or, or, or whatever. But right. at the same time, I, like, I, Nice Nail shows are weird because, like, I've only seen them live twice in recent years. But, like, it's never quite a Slipknot thing. It's never quite, like, the kind of, this is a, a, an incredible show. Like, I mean, like, there are elements to it, but mostly... It's just him and a great band and some cool lighting and stuff and some good, some, yeah, some interesting visuals. But like, I don't think this was meant to be conceived as some kind of rock opera opus thing. But then again, maybe it was. Also, I only re- I only read out four tracks, so throw uh, throw somewhat damaged in there as well because that song is fucking unbelievable. But yeah, I have to imagine that a lot of this stuff is just like this is what's gone on Trent Reznor's brain and it's not a great place to be at the moment. So, <laughs> like. Fair enough. Okay, we'll move to my number three. And speaking of Dark Nights of the Soul, this is like an extended Dark Night of the Soul, but but make it fun. And it's also proof that, you know, rock stars can still contribute to the world when they're living as tax exiles, which I think is an important message to get out there. <laughs> so here we go. Get my rocks off when I'm dreaming. The Rolling Stones rocks off as the opener to Exile on Main Street. Um, 67 minutes, so very brief, really. This was the first one to kept came to mind for me just because it's such a mythical double album. Um, but actually, you know, obviously that goes back to the days of vinyl and you needed those two different uh, LPs. So it's a bit shorter, but it does, and if it, it flies by. It's a sustained mood, though. And it's, to my mind, the very best Stones record. Um, It's... uh, I would rather stick this on. Oh, we're joined by Adam Shannon on the Sorry, dear listener, we've just had a surprise guest. And you just screamed (laughs) into the microphone there to give Adam some work to do. Nice one. He's he's back from his exhibition. Back from the gallery. (laughs) And he's waving, he's on cam. And it's a good time to arrive, I think. A bit more lighthearted. We're talking about the Stones. This was recorded in the south of France, 
sounds like a very fun time. And yeah, the Stones were like being crippled by the amount of tax they had to pay, which is like boohoo rich rock stars. But I, I think actually like late 60s, early 70s, the rate of tax that like when you're in that bracket in the UK was something like 90% of your income went to the tax This fund. is not where I thought the top um, five was going to go this week, but okay. <laughs> I'm, Fucking I'm right Forbes.com like... <laughs> Craig Fitzpatrick over here. But listen, Did you know, it Dave, sparked them into action. Actually, <laughs> Her Majesty's. <laughs> listen, it was cause con- for concern for Keith Richards and Mick Jagger and the lads. So they moved to the French Riviera and they set up in like the basement of um, Keith Richards' gaff, which was like, of course, the, like a former headquarters for like the local Gestapo and seemed kind of haunted already. Like when they rocked up to the gaff, like the place was still decorated with swastikas, which like they were immediately on the back foot a bit. The working title for the record was Tropical Disease. Everyone was on heroin. Um, There was kind of drug dealers coming and going. There was people breaking in. William S. Burroughs would just rock up for a bit and uh, Mick Jagger would be like, oh yeah, I'll do some of your like cut up technique from my lyrics and you'd get like a song out of it. Um, I, I think what's important about this record is it's the one time the Rolling Stones were actually the Rolling Stones because they're just like, they're kind of just like middle class white English guys that were well to do to begin with and were cribbing a sound from um, American musicians and that rock and roll thing and kind of playing dress up and they were never really outlaws. Um, they were kind of establishment but they found themselves in a situation with Exile and Main Street where the band was falling apart. Uh, they were running into troubles with the authorities. They were in a bad way, I think, physically and mentally. They were in a dank basement and somehow it just coalesced where like they became the kind of rebels they always wanted to be. For like a few months, they had this dark period and it caps off their kind of imperious phase, I think, musically. This is the one to stick on, I think, rather than the greatest hits, as I'd say. Like, I just, I'd say maybe, I mean, I, I do love the song that we just played, but I don't think any of their big songs are on this. Tumbling D- Dice was a hit. I don't even know if many of my favourite Stone songs are on this, but I will put this on far sooner than I will want to hear a jumping Jack Flash you know, outside of a gimme shelter, I don't usually want to listen to the Rolling Stones. I know I had a kind of um, a bit of a love affair with some of their later stuff there recently. But overall, the hits are the hits. They've become a caricature, you know, of the Rolling Stones. Like for the past 30 years or so, they've just been a kind of corporate machine. But this, this is like what the Stones actually could be. And it was that kind of thing all too briefly, but it's a double album, so get stuck in. He's a controversialist, folks. I will say, I, I probably am. agree with that sentiment generally, even though I'm, I'm always on my I prefer the Stones to the Beatles thing. And at a time, Craig, I mean, at a time is one is, is a song to be listened to at all times, I yeah. would say. Um, and of course, at a time uh, is a song I fell in love with when it appeared on the soundtrack to a film a couple of years ago. Um, guess the film, listener. But in the meantime, I'm taking you to a different score for a different film. Uh, I've talked about this before on No Ox Chord, so I might keep this one a little bit brief, but uh, it blows me away. Here we go. Here's my number two.
and breathe. That's Hans Zimmer and it's Interstellar. The Interstellar score. Murph! <laughs> Murph! Make <laughs> stay, Murph. Um, yeah, so that's... Um, I think that's uh, Our Destiny Lies Above Us, which I'm not even sure if it's on the version I have. Because, like, the score... I think the original score is, like, 71 minutes long. But I got a vinyl of it recently that's, like, this super-duper fucking, you know, eight vinyl expanded edition or something. And I think it's two hours and right. 20 minutes. So... And I have listened to it a few times. Um, I mean, it can be a bit of a nightmare having to constantly, you know, change the thing around. But, like... Uh, extremely immersive, I would say. Uh, I've said before on No Oxcord, which is you can get on patreon.com slash noencore, that um, it's a film I keep falling in love with the more that I see it. Uh, I wasn't crazy about it when I first saw it back when it was released, but the more I watch it, the more I think it's actually a masterpiece and I probably will watch it again I soon. Agree. And I think a big part of that is Hans Zimmer's score. I think this is Hans Zimmer's best work. I think it's pretty fucking outstanding from start to finish i toyed with the idea of picking ad astra instead of this one but i think there's some weird stuff with the ad astra score where it's like two different composers and there's talk that maybe the studio wanted this thing in and that thing in but there's some unbelievable okay. stuff on that score as well if you're in the mood for a heavy kind of sci-fi score and i i think that the interstellar score the ad astra score are really good scores to work to as well you know when you're working away and you don't want a podcast or you don't want like something with too busy lyrics or whatever um i think just the craft and the the instrumentation on this is just fucking unbelievable genuinely feels like it's taking to another universe as it should uh and for Hans zimmer who i think can be quite lazy and quite cannibal self-cannibalistic and obviously works with fucking scores and teams of people um for this to be kind of one of his scores that i think appreciates and value over the last kind of seven eight years uh, I think it's quite remarkable and I, I think it's very emotional uh, and just very, very vivid and very, very interesting. And there's, it's not his typical score. Like it doesn't have, it has the bombast for sure, but it's not full. Got a lot of heart. Yeah. Too. And it's not like full on just like the fucking boom, like shit that he fucking does all the time now. And there's just some very interesting, innovative things on there. And it sounds kind of like a few other things that I've heard. And I think it's amazing. And I do find that when I throw it on, it, crucially for a long album it doesn't feel as long as it is which you know can can be a nice bonus craig when it happens and that's all i gotta say about that because i'm aware that this episode is going to be challenging long albums for its length as it is so why don't we just move on to your number two <laughs> okay yeah let's go from the cinematic to um a record i think that enters the realms of the literary for sure there you go Joanna Newsome, it's Have One On Me from 2010. It's a triple album. And um, I think if we're talking about structures and kind of formats and stuff, it does actually work quite nicely as you can totally approach it from the point of view of being like, oh, Joanna Newsome just happened to make three really, really good records um, at the same time and then release them packaged together. But it does also have so many kind of tremendous callback moments and true lines lyrically just even in very very subtle ways and just arrangement flourishes that do add up to 
really kind of satisfying listen overall if you get the chance to just put it on. And it is kind of overwhelming. I think she can be an overwhelming artist at times, mainly because she's so bloody talented and intense that it's like I need to gear up uh, sometimes to get into Joanna Newsom mode. So also not, I don't think on Spotify or very many places. She's on YouTube, but you're not going to stick on a triple album on YouTube. I suppose you could. You could just buy the album. Um, <laughs> what a concept. <laughs> <laughs> well worth it. <laughs> Get the final. It's mad to me that this was released after um, Yeesh. Yeesh. I, I always say Yeesh, but Y-S, which was um, the previous album and was already a bit of an epic. I think there's five tracks on that, but they're all like well over 10 minutes. And it's just a masterclass and kind of storytelling very impressionistic and very kind of bucolic and very challenging. And it was just like, okay, where does she go from here? And the answer was a triple album. And I think the most shocking thing is that it somehow was her becoming more accessible. Like there's nothing in the way of flab on this. There's even very few moments where you'd just be like, oh, this is nice background stuff. She is constantly singing. The lyrics are just pouring out of her. They are just like of the highest quality. They do pass that test of just like if they are written down and you're reading them, they have their own kind of form of music. They do feel like genuine poetry. It's like the Walt Whitman test or whatever. It's just like she's just got such a high standard. Um, It's a great like American tome. It just feels like it could be a novel. It's, you know... It's pretty remarkable, I think. And, you know, when Joanna Newsom arrived, she's got the distinctive voice and she was coming out of like freak folk. And I think there was that narrative around of her of being, you know, she's a bit of a kook and um, like the music is kind of compelling, but it's crazy and it's like unmannered and all of that kind of quite sexist stuff. This is extremely mannered music. It's... um deliberate and poured over and well worked and it's just absolutely masterful and yeah I mean really accessible music it's not pop music sometimes there's not much in the way of well very often there's not much in the way of choruses or discernible kind of structure but the callbacks as I say and these kind of little musical motifs they're just so compelling uh, just hook you in it feels like you're into the realms of the classical, as she kind of mixed her kind of folk leanings, found the blues, discovered this, you know, extra dimension she went into. Yeah, I can't speak highly enough about it. It's like it, it, you have to gear up to listen to it, as I say, but please do, people, because if you haven't heard it in a while or if you've never heard it, it's such a treat. You're in for a treat. All right. Number one uh, from me in long albums here is uh, I think it is a treat, but it's very fucking moody. It's very, very heavy. Uh, it can be quite sour. And I feel like I've never talked about this act on this show before. So let's do it. Here's my number one best long album ever, I guess. Here it is. So that is an act by the name of Have a Nice Life. They're an American post-punk band, a duo, uh, Dan Barrett and Tim McCuga. 
They've been around since 2000 or so. The album in question is called Death Consciousness. It's all one word. And the track that you heard there is called The Big Gloom, which I would have heard back in the late 2000s. This album came out in 2008 and it is 85 minutes long, 13 tracks. It's a double album. It's split into two kind of parts. And I've never heard anything like it. Um, I think with this kind of music, I suppose, I mean, like I could have picked Godspeed You Black Emperor and I very much considered putting them in there. You could probably get an explosion mm. in the sky or an I'll say or someone like that in here. But like, this is the one that kind of jumped out at me. Um, it's a tough one to even describe. The whole thing about this album is that like, apparently it came out and just like died a death and didn't do anything and no one listened to it and it made no money and it was just like out there in the world. And over time, it became this kind of cult thing. Um, it was kind of shared around and it, and it developed its own kind of reputation. Um, another thing about it is how like it cost less than a grand to to record. And I mean, like you kind of heard a bit of it there. Like one of the characteristics on this album is the snare drum sound, which sounds like very boomy very echoey, very industrial, and it's all across the record. Uh, unlike, say, Lars Ulrich's snare drum in St. Anger, <laughs> I don't think that it's jarring to the listener. I think it actually has its place. This album is awash with distortion and discordant kind of sounds. Um, and apparently it's down to how it was recorded. Like um, one of them said that it's notoriously lo-fi sound is because uh, a lot of it was recorded through the pinhole mic on a laptop. Uh, so they just didn't have the fucking budget. But it does kind of sound like Steve Albini or somebody like made it sound this wonderful shoegazy wash of things. Yeah. Um, it's a super dark record. Uh, to go back on kind of what I was saying before about Nine Snails or whoever, like I would include this very much in the conversation. This is a very, I think it's a very exhaustive experience. I think it's a very draining album. But it's it's it sounds like nothing else I've ever heard. It's so atmospheric. It feels kind of personal, and I don't feel a depressive vibe off it. And this week, you know, to go back to the top of the show. Uh, on paper, I was like, "Am I really going to fucking listen to all eighty five minutes of Death Consciousness by Have a Nice Life? Could this possibly, you know, be the thing that just fucking pulls me down fully?" And I was like, "No, actually, it kind of worked. It kind of helped." There are the occasional high octane moments on here. There's like tracks like Deep Deep, which are just like this kind of full bore, propulsive, almost like scary theme park ride of a song. But generally it, it, it kind of clings to its languid nature. Some of the tracks here are 10 minutes long. The final track on the record is a song called Earth Mover. It's 11 and a half minutes long. And it's just one of the great fucking, you know, this style of music tracks I've ever heard. Uh, it builds and builds and builds and builds. It's repetitive as hell in, in a very knowing way. And it just has this crescendo that just, again, is up there with like converges Jane Doe at times. It's not really a very screamy record. It is that kind of weird kind of, there's a passivity to it at times. It feels like an art installation of a record. It feels like something that like, that, like it does feel like a painting or something that's kind of dominating the room around you. Um, the best thing I could say to someone is just go and listen to it. Uh, it's It's got a cult legacy, but I don't know a lot of people who know it. So one more time, the album is called Death Consciousness. The actor have a nice life and it's demanding and it requires patience and commitment. But that's what a good long album should, I suppose. And I felt that it was time to give it its flowers on this show. So that's my number one. Fair play. It's really interesting. Um, I also went quite obscure. Uh, this is my latest obsession with an act I am regularly obsessed with. 
I've said before, I, I think they're a perfect band that don't have a, a perfect record. And this is maybe their most imperfect record, but I think it's, I think I've now decided it's their best. It has absolutely everything. Everything, I think, except Maxwell Silverhammer. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, fuck me. Uh, I feel like <laughs> what a wonderful, what a wonderful microcosm contrast of our of our general personalities. But like at this stage, man, I, I don't even know what to say here. Apart from, oh, what's that coming over the hill? Is it Eternal Optimist Craig? Yeah, an Eternal Optimist Paul McCartney <laughs> doing a Beach Boys pastiche and kind of Russian parody. Um, what a kind of a flip around. That's back in the USSR. It's the opener from the White Album. Am I really going to talk about the Beatles? It's a 90-minute Beatles album. Um, I find it hugely compelling. It's probably the closest record we picked in our top fives to the, the Big T one, and just in terms of... It doesn't really have super long songs. There's 30 songs here. Uh, it was the band writing in Rishikesh where they kind of decamped to you know, get really into transcendental meditation and all they had were acoustic guitars. So they kind of just went back to their rock and roll um, roots to a degree and just wrote in a kind of very simple way. And then when they got back to the studio, they did their kind of usual thing of just embellishing and just um, mixing things up. But I think at, at its heart, it's quite a timeless album. It doesn't feel dated in terms of the psychedelia of um, Sgt. Pepper's. And it's just got a huge array of stuff it's like George Harrison property finally coming into his own so you've now got three absolutely world class uh, songwriters and there's there's stuff on this that is like would be the best songs from you know a different band's entire discography but they're like a lot of people wouldn't even know them there's like songs like long 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 where George Harrison's vocals are completely buried and you've got Ringo just coming in with these crashing drums and it's eerie and weird and somehow ends up sounding like a lost Elliot Smith classic. And just the juxtapositions that are going on work so well. So you have like a song like Sexy Sadie, which is just some of Lennon's kind of uh, one of his, you know, most indelible melodies, but like a, quite a caustic um, look at the hypocrisy of... Um, dude Maharishi that was running um, that kind of Indian camp um, but just then crashing down the wake of that you've got Helter Skelter so it's all over the place in a brilliant way it's also got those kind of jokey moments where you're just like they're wearing I guess their reputation um, very lightly and it feels like it's not the myth of the Beatles this record it's like the men it's like very raw, it's very personal and up close and like in jokey in a way that includes you. They've got nowhere to hide in these songs. Um, it's just really kind of fascinating and the songs are great and it might be the entry point, I think, for people that have written off the Beatles previously. 90 minutes though, you um, say. Because it feels, yeah, but it, you know what? It, it zips by, Dave. <laughs> you won't feel it. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I'm not going to try and convince you more, but I just, I do love it. I think it's them 
in a different light. And then it closes with like, it kind of closes with the myth, which, which is them just like giving Ringo <laughs> the last song. And it's like this lullaby where it's like a curtain closer of good night. And it's, you know, the Fab Four giving you a little kiss in the forehead and tucking you in. And uh, that's got to be worthy of number one for me. Well, listen, I won't be adding anything to that, let me tell you, for a variety of reasons. <laughs> Least of all, the fact that we, we may have gone over two hours in this episode, but in fairness, long, long, long albums and a, lot, yeah. a lot of life updates and stuff. And the Super Bowl chat as well, of course, which is always very important. But uh, uh, I'm glad he's back to sitting there patiently waiting to edit this podcast that we are still doing. The real patron saint of the show, let's be honest. The longest album in our life. The greatest man, <laughs> the most beautiful human being. And as we said earlier in the show, congratulations to Adam, of course, on his new musical journey that he is embarking yes. upon and is going to slay, as the kids say. Uh, that's enough podcasting for one week. This was a long one. And uh, hopefully I'll be in a better mood next week. But uh, thanks for everyone who listens to the show and says nice things, etc. And thanks for being here, Craig. This has made me feel a bit better. So that's that's a good thing. Wouldn't be anywhere else. I mean, listen, if if I don't get my Beatles fix through the show, I don't know how else it's going to (laughs) happen. So my name is Dave Hanready. This has been No Encore. There'll be No Encore. And you can support the show anytime you want to at patreon.com slash no encore. Back next week. Love you. Bye, bye, bye. Stay safe. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.